Mr. Ocean, what do you think you would do if released? Clooney is smirking like a motherfucker right now. You just can't see it because it's a podcast. Ocean's Eleven. When I was a little boy in the aughts, I didn't at all understand what this movie was, and when I heard the title in conversation, I would often legitimately wonder what the deal was with Oceans 1 through 10, in the same way that heretics often are confused by the non-existence of Mambo's 1 through 4. My sister, a proper millennial and not a bottom-feeding cusper like me, was 13 when it came out in 2001 and saw it four times in theaters as was her right, and I could have known better if I only asked her. Then when I was of age, I watched it, and I watched it again, and I borrowed the DVD from my parents so I could take it on a youth group field trip, and we could all watch it on the little TVs on the bus. And as these rewatches continued, I eventually came to realize that this glossy collection of quips, handsomeness, and bass riffs was more than the sum of its parts, was actually one of the most base-level satisfying movies that is around to be watched. It wasn't until 2020, when I had my hundredth or so watch amid the navel-gazing exercise of starting a pop culture podcast, that I started to ponder what it is about this movie that makes it just so good, and why none of its sequels, spin-offs, or imitators has come close to giving me the feeling I get when I watch it. And when I started gazing at that navel, gazing real hard, I confirmed that this is a truly special movie, with a screenplay like no other, that pulls off a few tricks no other Hollywood movie has ever pulled off quite the same way. So let's settle in for a celebration of this fun, fun movie, and a bit of a breakdown of what makes it work. My name is Nate Perlmutter, and I welcome you to this second installment of What a Stupid Thing to Say, a show where we make outrageous claims about pop culture and then take up the thankless, humiliating task of backing them up. Today's claim, Ocean's Eleven, objectively, cannot be topped. You're out of your goddamn mind. Thanks, Ruben. To specify, I'm talking about the movie Ocean's Eleven, which was released on December 7, 2001. It was directed by Steven Soderbergh and stars George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Andy Garcia, and THE Julia Roberts, not the one from 1960 starring Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, though I will be talking about that bizarre old chestnut later, this being one of the rare instances where a remake far, far surpasses the original. Still, why talk about a 19-year-old blockbuster in 2020? Well, the first reason is the first reason anyone is making a podcast or a newsletter or a TikTok account or what have you these days. I've got time. The second reason pertains to escape, the other thing we're all trying to do in our separately locked domiciles. We're turning to shows, we're turning to movies, and with props to Ocean's 8, which is pretty fun, this is just an area where they don't make them like they used to, goddammit. We don't need to analyze very far to know that Ocean's Eleven is such a good time. It's hot, famous people saying really funny dialogue and pulling cool stunts and Brad Pitt keeps eating and there's that music that's like... And the twists and the... Look, I have my own points to make, and I hope to educate somewhat on screenplay structure and effects narratives can have on people, but please, oh please, if you only take one thing away from this podcast, let it be taking 160 minutes for yourself, and if necessary, $4 to rent it legitimately, and watching Ocean's Eleven, I think it'll be good for you. Have a scotch, have some popcorn, take it out of the microwavable bag and put it into a bowl because you'll feel more full, and like you're really watching a movie that way, watch it, it's good, and if you've never seen it, definitely watch it at least once before listening any further because nothing I have to say will matter to you whatsoever. Alright. Enough. Salute. So, now that we're all comfortable and sated with the movie, I think we can all agree the best part of Ocean's Eleven is Elliot Gould's performance as Ruben Tishkoff. Once you're out the front door, you're still in the middle of the fucking desert! Soon, we'll all be dressing that way. Here is that rare, luscious character whose every line is quotable. That's wonderful. Get in the goddamn house. Ah. Alright, to generalize away from my own fetishes, the first thing that stands about Ocean's Eleven is its cast. Even when you get below the top billing, you've got Don Cheadle, Gould, more legends like Carl Reiner and Bernie Mac, and of course at the top you've got Clooney, Roberts, and Pitt. D Damon even looks okay with the brown hair and the glasses on. Let's face it, this is one of the most handsome movies ever made. 
Everyone looks so good, just like the casino looks so good. These are movie stars being movie stars the old-fashioned way. Yes, I mean it. Pitt and Leo and others are still around, but it doesn't happen anymore. Ocean's Eleven made $450 million at the box office. These days, you're not making that kind of money unless you're fast or furious or something. I don't know. I haven't seen him. The guy died. It was very sad. And now that COVID killed the theater, you might not see that kind of box office ever again, unless you're specifically Dwayne Johnson and you will it so. Now he's going to blow it up next month to make way for some gaudy monstrosity. Clooney and Pitt are a couple of our final existing larger-than-life movie stars in that Humphrey Bogart mode. And I love Fight Club and Seven and whatever else you're going to name, but let me make the case that Ocean's Eleven is peak Pitt. The case has been made that Brad is a character actor trapped in a body too handsome for his own good, which is why you can see him be wonderfully goofy in movies like True Romance and Inglorious Bastards, but he never balanced the two things as well as he does here as Rusty, the soul of the group, the character who has honestly way more and better quips than Danny, eating in every single shot, eating for real because Brad Pitt is dedicated to his craft, eating 40 shrimp in the scene where Julia Roberts first appears, and always spouting shit like, I'd say you're looking at it. A Boski, a Jim Brown... Miss Daisy, two Jethro's, and Leon Spinks. Not to mention the biggest Ella Fitzgerald ever. Then there's the inventive score by David Holmes. Then there's the iconic direction by Steven Soderbergh with those split screens and montages, and of course, Ted Griffin's screenplay that just has so many wonderful bits, like when Basher gets caught booby-trapping and he says to his team, You tossers! You had one job to do! And now, that's a widespread, commonplace joke. Yeah. Did you know that sarcastically saying you had one job to do came from Ocean's Eleven? There's no published record of it beforehand. So okay, Ocean's Eleven has a good script and good casting and good oral and visual elements. It's a fun movie, woohoo. But you could say that of a lot of movies. Like Schindler's List. Ocean's Eleven is fun, worthwhile, a good time on this different level, though, that, dare I say it, Schindler's List doesn't hit. A certain feeling that pervades as you watch this crew assemble to rob Terry Benedict and the Mirage the Bellagio and the MGM Grand, getting away with it all. There's a very specific term I would apply, which is that it's satisfying. And isn't that kind of what you want out of a blockbuster movie you go see in the summer of the winter? You want your mother's work, you want a full meal. When you watch that last frame of Ocean's Eleven as Benedict's bros follow Rusty, Danny, and Tess away, you close the streaming app and you're like, Hmm, mm, mm, that was good. There, does that satisfy you, Mr. Zerga? I'm very satisfied. It's not just funny, it's not just well done, it provides that feeling of completeness you get when watching a round peg go in a round hole, or the grating of cheese, or whatever there is in r slash oddly satisfying. But instead of feeling that way for the length of a gif, you feel it for an hour and 56 minutes. An IMDb trivia entry quotes Soderbergh as saying, Ocean's Eleven was my opportunity to try and make a movie that has no desire except to give you pleasure from beginning to end. A movie that you just surrender to, without embarrassment and without regret. And I did a lot of Googling, and was completely unable to verify that he ever said that, and someone on Blogspot might have totally made it up, but whether or not he said it, it's dead on. So how does Oceans go beyond good to being just so pleasurable? Well, the first few ingredients of this satisfying batter are ingredients Oceans Eleven shares with a few other dishes. The ingredients of the heist genre. The genre of getting away with it. Because it's a movie genre engineered to satisfy. And the genre's success, like Rusty Ryan, rests on three pillars. Heist! Pillar 1 is meticulousness. As opposed to an action movie or a sports movie with a bunch of discrete confrontations and interspersed with dialogue scenes, or not interspersed through something crazy like Mad Max or John Wick, in a heist movie, 
You are the entire time grinding toward a single goal, a single ending, and you get to see every little step along the way. For a non-Ocean's Eleven example, look at the 1969 classic The Italian Job, starring Michael Caine. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off! Seems like Basher took some inspiration from that accent. In Italian Job, Kane's character gets out of prison, rounds up the gang, plans the heist, puts heist elements into place, and then runs the heist. This might sound familiar because it's also the sequence of events of Ocean's Eleven. And that predictability here is a benefit, it means things can flow at this relatively genteel pace. We watch Livingston put the surveillance device in Benedict's back rooms. We watch Frank feed Rusty the info on the stripper Lovelorn security guard. Thanks, Sean, mate. I'll have this back in an hour. Dying to your mom for me. Say it yourself. She'll be on stage in five minutes. And resultantly, we feel familiarity, we feel like we're in on it. Doesn't matter how complex and nonsensical and arcane the criminal plot is, we have the time to know it completely. It's sort of the movie analog of having a real-world hobby. You chip away, a little at a time, working for a payoff. Did you get the cookies I sent? Why do you think I came to see you first? Pillar 2. Camaraderie. Heist movies have high-stakes endings, but uniquely low-stakes mid-sections while Pillar 1 is taking hold. It doesn't matter how cool the setup is or how much your brain is racked thinking about, wait a minute, I myself have a handful of friends I could bone myself a scheme with. You're gonna need characters to hang on to, and of course, your best heist movies have this in spades, because when you necessarily have all these people working together, they gotta hang out, and if it's written well enough, it's like you're hanging out. Other than ensemble comedies like the Wet Hot American Summers of the World, heists might be the only genre where you sort of get that sitcom everybody-knows-your-name feeling. Think of a great non-traditional heist movie, Reservoir Dogs, where orange, white, pink, and blonde, when they're not shooting each other, have lots of time to discuss their murders and past grievances with each other, and occasionally be racist. For a better example, there's this movie called Ocean's Eleven, which starts off with Clooney and Pitt easily pulling off Danny and Rusty's real friendship. God, I'm bored. You look bored. I am bored. And then brings the others in, little by little, with little character moments and shots of their chilling during the day-to-day -day of heist setup. Ten says he shorts it. Twenty. So... With Pillars 1 and 2 hand in hand, you spend an hour, hour 20 minutes, watching your new cool best friends do stuff. It's almost like watching How It's Made or some other educational documentary. But what those lack is Pillar 3. Pillar 3 is the last piece of the puzzle, the thing it's all building to, the catharsis, the escape, the fuck yeah, the getting away with it itself. In Ocean's Eleven, it all coalesces at this moment. I don't understand. What happened to all that money? Oh shit, that's Rusty in the SWAT team outfit. They have all 160 million dollars. Stunned. Regardless of whether there's a twist per se, there is the feeling of a project completed. And that's the best part of a big ol' task, of course. Finishing. Accomplishment. Victory. Now, of course, plenty of other blockbuster genres necessarily end in a victorious catharsis, whether a rom-com kiss or the bad guy dying, or a food critic giving the peasant dish a stunning review. But there's something deeper the heist movies tap into, where you're not just winning, you're winning against someone, in this case Andy Garcia. You're pulling a fast one, you've proven yourself in the battle of wits. Inconceivable! It's especially helpful that these rug-pull moments often need a little work on the viewer's own part to understand the plot twist, which gives the audience a further sense of accomplishment. Oh, that's how they did that. So now you're smart along with the characters. Pat yourselves on the back. And just like when Jason Statham blows a guy up or Kira Knightley lands the winning penalty kick, we might let out a triumphant yell, but in a heist movie, that yell dissolves into a smirk. In an unfair world, for better or worse, that smirk is a sought-after feeling, and only the heist gets it for you. Play long enough, you never change the stakes, the house takes you. Unless, when that perfect hand comes along, you bet big, and then you take the house.
This is actually a big reason that this movie far surpasses the Frank Sinatra original. See, in the original Ocean's Eleven, thanks to 60s Hollywood executive meddling, they fucking lose. They pull the heist, and then one of the members dies, and the money gets accidentally cremated alongside him. I don't feel bad spoiling it, because you don't need to see the movie. It's a bummer. Also has long, dull stretches, less memorable characters, and much less interesting scheme. This is a genre that is engineered to please, and it really can only do that if they get away with it. Well, you've already lost. The money sent out of town, long gone. And that brings up an interesting point as we try to figure out why Ocean's Eleven is even better at satisfying than its heist movie comrades. Because though they were assholes and probably all voted for Nixon all three times, these 60s studio execs were correct that in these movies you are rooting for bad guys. Ocean's Eleven 2001 is actually a really acute example of this. Within the movie, we have no evidence that Danny is like a good moral guy. He's polite, loyal to friends, competent in his chosen line of work, but good? Compared to a heist movie like The Score, where De Niro is pulling the job to help a decaying bloated Brando on his way out of the robbery game, or Tower Heist, where Ben Stiller is going up against a boss who's underpaying him. Even in Ocean's 12 or 13, they have to pull the schemes to save their own asses and to honor a sickly Reuben. <laughs> Sorry, I got, got a little choked up about Reuben. Point is, some heist movies decide to give the protagonist some good reason to pull the heist, but Oceans is in a class with its predecessor, both Italian Jobs and Out of Sight, another great Clooney-Soderbergh collab. These are heist movies where our man is really only motivated by self-gain. Now, of course, there are many great movies with morally ambiguous criminal protagonists, but this is notable here because this isn't structured like a character drama or an epic, or even like most crime movies. It's a straightforward Saturday matinee PG-13 family blockbuster, with George freaking Clooney postured as an assumed hero on a heartwarming journey, he being our Luke or Harry or what have you. Screenwriter Blake Snyder, in his book Save the Cat, laid down a set of rules for this character that most major studio hits follow. The title of the book means that we should establish our protagonists and get the audience to root for them by having them do something good, like saving a stray cat. Like, for example, Bob literally saving a cat three minutes into The Incredibles. Danny's establishing moment, he doesn't save the cat. He sarcastically answers the parole board's questions. She already left me once. I don't think she'd do it again just for kicks. And then puts a suit on. We don't establish the character as worthy of rooting for. We establish him as fucking cool, which is, of course, all we need to run on here. That's his starting point, but his goal isn't noble either. It's to steal several million dollars so he can, like, have it. Does he make you laugh? He doesn't make me cry. Now, the counter-argument here is, of course, that Danny isn't just after the money. He also wants to get his ex-wife Tess back. And Clooney makes that clear. He does want her back. He's not merely about money. We believe that. But that's still self-serving. As Danny succeeds in convincing Tess, Benedict's an asshat who doesn't deserve her, but then... We have no evidence that Danny does deserve her, other than that he's cool and hot. We do know he was previously something of a bad husband. How am I going to get my five years back, Danny? And, in fact, their eventual reconciliation comes only from the reveal of Benedict's shittiness, not from any decrease in Danny's shittiness. So Danny and Tess end up together because he is cool and hot. One valid criticism of Ocean's Eleven that it unfortunately shares with so many hit movies is that its female lead is woefully undercooked as opposed to the men. Roberts never getting so much time to shine with characterization or witty dialogue as Clooney or Pitt. Roberts' best material comes, as it happens, at the very end, as we see Tess in her element, loving her husband, the roguish thief. Liar. Thief. She even gets in on the thievery in 12, and one of the things to compliment about that movie's script is it gives Roberts more scenery to chew and more great interplay with Clooney. In both movies, Danny's wooing of Tess is fun, it's romantic, but to get back to the point, it doesn't make him a better guy. 
Sure, he may see himself as altruistic for reading Tessa Benedict, but there is no counter-argument when Julie Roberts says, You have to admit there is a bit of a conflict of interest when you give me advice about my love life. Alright, Ocean's Eleven is in a unique subgroup of blockbusters that have totally amoral protagonists. Make sense? Great. Ruben Tishkoff break. Enough monkey business. Okay, we're getting to a climax here where I stop clickbaiting and name the one special thing that puts Ocean's Eleven over the top of even the best heist movies, but first, in researching this episode, I read the whole Ocean's Eleven screenplay, and there are two pieces of material that got cut from the movie that I simply have to share with you, and of course they both pertain to the holy Tishkoff. Okay, the first one is the description that's given when Ruben first appears, in Vegas, with the force of the occupation of Paris. Okay, bad example. The screenplay said... <laughs> The screenplay says, by way of introducing us to him, that Ruben, quote, has the grimace of a man in mid-movement forever cemented on his face. Which, say what you will about our boy Elliot, but eternal constipation actually doesn't quite come across. The other cut is a line of dialogue, and I honestly wish it had been kept in the movie. It's from the scene halfway through where Ruben and Benedict stand together as the old casino is demolished. In the finished movie, they're silent. But in the screenplay, Benedict says, good to see you. And Ruben responds, go shit in your mouth. I mean, I don't think anything more needs to be said. Do it already. Okay, back to the normal thing. Ocean's Eleven and other heist movies are different than other straightforward, non-challenging blockbusters about a bunch of good guys winning because our good guys aren't good guys. So the question is, why do we respond to this? Why does this help them be so fun? Why do we love this so much as an audience? It's not necessarily that we revel in the immorality of the characters, although there's a certain extent to which we're all sort of play-acting as them, being a little daring, being a little what-if. But I think the more basic reason this works is... Ignoring issues of moral victories and weighings of good and evil and making sure the protagonist does the right thing or learns something, ignoring all that lets the movie more quickly get at the base animal pleasures that its premise has to offer. There's no buffer between us and the hot people looking good and being witty and pulling a scam over saxophone riffs. The movie never needs to pretend to be something it's not. Like, for this classic scene where Danny reveals he pretended he was off the job just to fuck with Linus. Yeah, but what about Rusty, the whole argument? I mean, what was that about? Oh, come on. Clooney originally had a longer serious line here about his relationship with Linus's dad, and how he brought Danny up in the thieving business, and it's very sweet, and Ocean's Eleven is totally better for it being cut, unlike the cutting of Go Shit in Your Mouth, because it would have stalled and kept us from getting the goods. This movie works because it's just the good stuff, no schmaltzy filler. Whether it's good for society that we so much enjoy this amoral story is irrelevant, we do enjoy it, and I'd say, yeah, it's alright, it's cool for us all to blow off a little steam now and then, no need to feel bad. Like, picture this movie just the same, but every few minutes it cuts to Danny, like, teaching a heartwarming young boy to play football. It just doesn't have the same appeal. Maybe someday they will make Ocean's 14 and a long gray-bearded Clooney will have a soulful monologue as Danny has his final moral reckoning, but it's okay that today is not that day. Danny's a bad boy, and that means we can just have fun with him. Okay, so, recap. Heist plot plus witty amoral protagonists equals satisfying popcorn flick. Fine, but Ocean's Eleven isn't alone in this. There's both Italian jobs, there's the Thomas Crown Affair, and more I haven't mentioned here. All of them are good at providing these simple human pleasures. Well, what can be better than simple human pleasures? What's better is receiving them without any effort whatsoever. See, the thing that makes Ocean's Eleven work so well, that makes it stand as the best ever of this adaptable genre, what makes it unique, dare I say, in Hollywood history, is that it has no conflict. Let me explain what I mean. The movie's great final plot twist, the one that triggers this sick Elvis remix that is the highlight of the score, it's when it's revealed that elements we thought were obstacles, like Benedict tracking Rusty and calling the SWAT team, were all part of the plan, and they've gotten away with it. This is part of a larger pattern within the movie, wherein Danny foresees and plans everything. 
From his jail cell at the beginning to his kiss with Tess over the closing credits, this is a movie wherein our protagonist has a goal and then everything goes exactly as planned on his way to achieving it. For the entire runtime, our hero has certain expectations and they are fulfilled. Sometimes it appears he has a misstep, but he's faking that. Our protagonist is never in doubt, our protagonist is never in danger, none of the characters grow or change. That should disqualify it as a narrative movie at all. A plan is hatched and then successfully followed. The end. We're supposed to need conflict, yet Ocean's Eleven operates so well without. It's thus differentiated from pretty much any other movie. Because conflict is necessary for all stories, right? That's basically definitional. And here's why Ocean's Eleven's absence of it ends up being beneficial. Though conflict is for most things a given, if you think about it, it always brings with it some amount, however minute in, say, a comedy or a martial arts movie, some amount of unpleasantness. When we watch Pam reject Jim at the end of season two, or Han Solo die, it's all part of our enjoyment of the work as a whole. But in that moment, even as we appreciate artistry, we on that base level, due to human empathy, feel some sadness or at least anxiety. It's all made worth it, but we feel it for at least a moment. That unpleasantness is necessary, right? That tension? Such that there can be a plot. But Ocean's Eleven succeeds at having a captivating plot in the absence of conflict. As such, it never has to indulge in the fleeting unpleasantnesses every other movie has hardwired in. Especially on rewatches, which is where this movie, like all classics, really shines, there is no tension at all because the endings, the victories, are foregone conclusions for Rusty and Danny, just as they are for the audience. But Soderbergh's real genius is that that feeling even carries over to your first watch. Those moments that in another movie would supply tension when you don't know what's going to happen, moments like Livingston getting lost in the back rooms of the Bellagio or Danny getting handed over to Bruiser. Ah! Ah! Jesus! Bruiser? Not until later. These moments are very brief, and where they exist, they are papered over by that propulsive David Holmes score, by the split-screen shooting that shows the rest of the Eleven watching and having each other's backs, by the sheer confidence Clooney and Pitt exude every second they're on screen. And yeah, it's unrealistic that they're never perturbed, but we like them so much that we prefer it that way. Every moment that in a differently shot and acted movie would be a customary source of momentary tension is here treated like another opportunity for a smirk. Like... Let's look at my favorite one-liner in the whole movie, which is Rusty's line at the end of this exchange, when he and Linus are talking about how dangerous it is going up against Benedict. You scared? You suicidal? Only in the morning. Only in the morning. First of all, I want to double down on how funny and poignant and relatable that line is, and second of all, it ties into what I'm talking about here, because listen to Pitt's delivery. The line is written because it's easily been delivered like, only in the morning, which would have still been a punchline but not one that completely deflates tension. The way Pitt handles it just with a smile on his face makes it absolute that it's just a joke. The movie has down to a science that these moments of hesitation last mere seconds. Even the villain never causes momentary doubt. Andy Garcia is never on screen and not satisfying the audience. He's either being Bond villain cool or losing. Run and hide, asshole. There's no downturn. No moment of solace, no Ocean's Twelve's long stretch where they don't really have a scheme, there's no section where the characters know they have won, but the audience doesn't know that they've won, which is something that provides tension in some heist movies like, uh, The Score, or for a better example, the classic The Sting with Paul Newman and Robert Redford. There are none of these sustained slowdowns, none of what Blake Snyder would call the dark night of the soul that every hero is supposed to have. Resultantly, Ocean's Eleven spends its 116 minutes supplying you with its bounty, the aforementioned base pleasures and satisfactions, without a single momentary break. 
The audience just spends the whole time chilling, laughing, as with friends. There are other movies that are similarly delivering perfection their entire runtime. Duh, The Godfather, you've heard of it. There are even movies that succeed every second in making the audience smile, like the best farces and slapstick comedies, Mel Brooks. But I think Oceans might be unique among great movies in this absolute lack of tension, conflict, or negativity. You're not supposed to be able to do that, but they pulled it off, and I don't think it can ever be pulled off again. I'm not saying that makes it better than other classics, ones that of course in large part ring their value, their beauty from conflict and negativity, but Ocean's Eleven is its own thing, valuable and beautiful in its own right. So, the less pithy episode title, and the point I'm trying to make is, Ocean's Eleven cannot be topped as a pure popcorn entertainment, because its over-the-top application of heist genre formula creates a plot that is devoid of tension, allowing the audience to be stimulated with the orgasmic feeling of a punchline for the entire runtime. Let's be good little scholars and turn to some counter-arguments. There are three. Number one, there is a point where things don't go according to Danny's plan, when Basher's original electrical plan goes alright. Yeah, we're in deep shit. Why isn't this a problem? A, because its entire presentation is silly. That poxy demo crew haven't used the coaxial inch to back the main line, have they? They've only nosed up the mainframe couplet, nosed it right up! And B, because it's solved in about three seconds, as is every other pseudo-conflict in the movie, with the introduction of the pinch. Number two. Ocean's Eleven could certainly be topped because some other heist movie could pull off this no-conflict aesthetic thing. Well, it's been tried. Soderbergh nearly equaled it with Logan Lucky, and Ocean's Eight is great too, but I think it's kind of clear that both of these are pretty directly aping Ocean's Eleven's use of the trope, indicating that it kinda owns it. You can't pull this trick without direct comparison to Ocean's Eleven, which also beats Ocean's Eight on a certain lack of filler in the pacing and the characters. Maybe a farther flung in the future reboot could completely revolutionize the genre and do to this Ocean's Eleven what it did to the Sinatra one, but that remains to be seen. Counter-argument 3. Who says heists are the only genre that can pull off this no-conflict thing? Even if you accept the premise that the protagonist has to be a, not a hero for it to work, that still leaves, for example, seasons 1 and 2 of House of Cards, where Underwood rises to the presidency just as he planned. But Frank is a murderer, and House of Cards is explicitly a morality tale, which means there's always going to be more unease to it than with our gentleman thief. An analog house of cards that has less unease, maybe less murder, wouldn't be as compelling. Okay, so let's remove the immoral protagonist condition. You can still see how a no-conflict plot falls apart in any other blockbuster genre. A superhero movie won't be fun if they just have a steady lead over the villain the whole time. Likewise, a sports movie won't be fun if they just handily win every game. A heist movie can get away with it because there's only one game. And it is fully satisfying to watch our team win that one game. So, Ocean's Eleven can't be beat. Watch that fountain scene one more time, why don't you? It says something different to me every time. We need more movies like this, and I hope we'll have them as we battle against a pandemic and an industry that time and time again puts profit over the joy it has the potential to bring to us all. Fucking Warner Brothers. Okay, sorry, yeah, a question for you to ponder as we finish up here. Is Danny Ocean omnipotent, omniscient, or both? And how does this relate to Epicurus's problem of evil? I'm Nate Perlmeter. This has been What a Stupid Thing to Say. Let's head out with a song. Who do you got in mind? This one goes out to Elliot Gould. So very Jewish, both in real life and in this movie. He's Ross and Rachel's dad on Friends. He's always got great chemistry there with Christina Pickles as his wife, Judy. Did you know Elliot Gould once played Michael Jordan one-on-one? -on -one? And basketball, that is, in a high school gym to benefit homeless children. 
And though Gould obviously didn't win one-on-one, when they followed it up with a game of horse, he did manage to give Jordan an H. This is real. Google it. He's great in Robert Altman films like Mash and the Long Goodbye, and he honestly was kind of hot back in the day. I assume he's good on Ray Donovan, too. Although I've never seen the show. Oh, Elliot Gould, Elliot Gould.